evangelism, God's person. We've looked at evangelism, God's plan. We've looked at evangelism, God's purpose. This morning we're going to look at evangelism, God's person. And as you might know, that person is not you. That person is Jesus Christ. You may have been involved in a circumstance where the program was the focus. There was a program. There was a method. I want to challenge you this morning to consider the possibility of abandoning your method. Even if your method really falls along the lines of Scripture, ask yourself, is there some possibility that the Lord might actually take me a different direction if I would trust Him to just get to the Gospel? There are a number of methods that are well-known and public today, and I believe the Lord has used them. But you don't see any of them in the Bible. What you do see is the Gospel. See, evangelism is not a program, and it is not about a program. It is not a matter of memorizing a method of engaging people in conversation. You know, rehearsing and practicing and getting to the place where you are more equipped or better to engage people in conversation. And by the way, I think that's a good thing to do. If you have trouble getting to know people, practice conversation. Think of ten questions that you can ask someone in an effort to show interest in their life. Now, first, be interested. Right? Don't just act interested. Be interested. And then think of ten questions or more that you can ask that person as you're trying to get to know that person. Not just for the sake of evangelism, but for the sake of, of ministering to other people. But that in and of itself is not a necessarily prescribed method of evangelism. What is, is the person. God's person in evangelism. If our evangelism is not ultimately about Him, then it is not in accord with God's purpose nor His plan in evangelism. Your evangelism must be about you loving Jesus Christ and communicating that love to others who will give you the privilege to do so. So here's some points about him. Number one, he is human. Jesus Christ is 100% man. And as a human, as a man, he exhibited a normal birth. Luke 2 verse 7 says about Mary, she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. He exhibited growth. He experienced physiological growth. Luke 2 verse 40 says, the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom and the grace of God was upon him. He experienced family. Matthew 13 55 says, Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. He experienced weariness. He knew fatigue. In John 4, 6, we read, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. And as he was there, he was tired. He was exhausted from walking. 
experienced thirst in chapter 19 of the Gospel of John, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. He was hungry. Matthew 4, verse 2. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. This is a human experience. He experienced temptation. Hebrews 4.15 For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. You say, well, if he was tempted didn't he consider sinning? So no, in his temptation he did not sin. Well, what's the deal here then? You and I give in to temptation. There is some temptation. It either comes from our own hearts as we walk by the flesh. It also comes from Satan. It could come from demons. It comes from the world. But that temptation, many times in our lives, results in spiritual defeat for us and some sort of victory for the other side. Not so with Christ. And therefore, he received the full load of Satan's temptation and yet without sin. His temptation was infinitely greater than anything you or I will ever be subjected to. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us he knew no sin. Jesus exhibited obedience. This is a human experience. He obeyed his Father. Romans 5.19 says, For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Hebrews 5.8 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. So he not only obeyed, but he learned obedience as a boy, as a young adult. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Matthew 26, 39, he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. This is an obedient heart. He being, for a time, divested of his deified prerogatives in his humanity, was unaware of ultimately how things would transpire. And his prayer was, may this cup pass from me. I don't want to be separated from you, Father. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so Jesus' will and the Father's will were never different. They were in ultimate unity. He exhibited substitution. He exhibited substitution. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made him who knew no sin become sin. So he bore the shame, Isaiah tells us. He bore the guilt. He bore the disdain of his father. And he bore the wrath of his father. He took what you and I deserve. He bore it 
in full such that for all those who will trust in him, they will not experience the wrath that they deserve. 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He bore our sins that he might substitute for us. It would not have been a valuable offering for him to die for us if he had not taken our sins. He substituted for us because he was made sin on our behalf. Romans 5.10 For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. This is a substitutionary death. It is a substitutionary atonement. It is a covering of one's sins as a result of the willingness of another to take them on. So that paved the way for him to die a substitutionary death. Jesus engaged in substitution. He did so as a man. Mediation is closely related to substitution. He stands in the gap between God and man. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus. He mediated between God and man. As a man. Hebrews 7.25 Consequently he is able for all time to save those who approach God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This intercession is a result of his desire to mediate. He continues that mediation between God and man by standing as an advocate before God on man's behalf. He exhibited Exemplary conduct as a man. 1 Peter 2.21 For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. I used to think of this as not being what Jesus did because so often there are those who will see that Jesus set an example and they void all the other theology of the Bible and so they focus on this idea that he was a good guy so we got to be a good guy let's just do what he did well the reality is that he has called us to follow in his example along with the substitutionary death that he died which we need to lean on and depend on but we must see that he has established for us how we are to conduct ourselves we are to follow his example Jesus also exhibited and experienced emotion. This is a human experience. John 12, 27. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. We're told that as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he experienced anguish. Jesus exhibited compassion. This is a human emotion. Hebrews 2.18 tells us, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You, you don't have trouble at all picturing someone coming to someone else's aid. I don't know why, but for me, the, the first thing that comes to my mind is on the, the field of battle, one who is down, wounded, and a, and a medic arrives to his aid. It's kind of a practical 
expression of that that we've thought of throughout the years as we think of war and battle and all the difficulties that go along with it. Someone needing assistance and someone providing it, and that's the case with us. We need aid. We need aid from someone who's been in the battle. We need aid from a human. We need aid from a man. We need aid from someone who, who can say, I am not without your experience. I am not without your difficulty. I am not without the pain and the sorrow and the suffering that you are experiencing. I know it in fullness. In his compassion, we are told in Matthew 9, 36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. That's a picture we all kind of have some awareness of. Uh, Maybe you know what it's like to be a Christian and have no shepherd. You don't know what it's like to be a literal sheep without a shepherd, but that would be troublesome, (laughs) wouldn't it? The difficulty of, you know, now what do I do? And I've eaten all the grass, now what do I do? Nobody to tell me what to do. And the truth is that that is the way Christians are. It's how I am. It's how we are. We need a shepherd. Jesus is that shepherd for us. And he looked upon the people with compassion. He didn't look at them and say, you know what? They got what they deserved. You know what? They made their own bed. Now they need to lay in it. He didn't look at unbelievers and say, you know, it's their fault. It's their problem. Let's just let them experience. Let's have, let's, let them experience some natural discipline. You know, we'll see what comes of it. He had compassion upon them. He was a man. And as a man, he wept. He wept as a man. He wept over his friend, Lazarus, who was dead. Again, having divested himself from his deified prerogatives, there is a sense in which we can trust and believe that in that moment, at least for some period of time, he may not have known what the ultimate outcome for Lazarus would be. And then he declared that he knew what it would be. And he resurrected him from the dead in a temporary sense to display what ultimately would happen for those who are in Christ who are experiencing the difficulty of knowing that this life is very painful. Well, ultimately there is the resurrection. The people looked on and they saw that. In Hebrews 5 verse 7, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Because of his circumspect mindset. Because of his great sensitivity to the things of the Lord. He was heard. The Lord heard him. His father responded to his prayer of weeping. Interesting that The emphasis the writer of Hebrews places here with loud crying and tears. Prayers and supplications with loud crying. You been there? So has your Savior. Friends, this is not storybook. This is not some sort of untouchable, ethereal theology that rests on some seminary professor's shelf that he pulls out in a seminary class to say, now men, you need to understand that Jesus cried loudly. This is for you and it's for me. Jesus is a man. 
And in his manhood, in his humanity, he experienced the fullness of difficulty. You need to know this in your evangelistic efforts. Let me remind you and myself that we in our evangelistic efforts are not primarily evangelizing the lost. We are primarily exalting the Savior. Evangelism is about the person of Jesus Christ. You know, we can't deliver the gospel and bypass the Savior. What should be on our hearts? It should be the glory of the Savior. The person who would come to Christ is the person that the Father has drawn unto Him and the person that the Father draws to the Savior is the person who has his eyes open, his ears are open, he now has the ability and the interest in examining the greatness and the value of knowing Christ Jesus. Paul said it this way, I desire to know nothing among you but Christ Jesus and Him crucified. He also says, I I long to know the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Evangelism is about Jesus, the man. Your point number one, he is human. Number two, he is eternal God. Hebrews 1 verse 8 says, But of the Son, he says, the he here is God. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God. Now stop there for just a minute and remind yourself of all those times that you've had interactions with individuals from certain cults who want you to believe that Jesus is not God. Take them to Hebrews 1 verse 8. And then give them a Starbucks card and ask them to leave. And come back in a week. God calls Jesus God. Enough said? Let's say some more. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will have no end. He is eternal. He is God in eternity future. He is God in eternity past. And therefore, He is the Creator. He is Creator God. He is eternal God Creator. Colossians 1.16 says, For by Him, Jesus Christ, for by Him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. John 1, 3, all things came into being through Him and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. But how can He be man and be God? Before I answer that, let me tell you this. You and I need to be verbal about this reality. He is not the man God. You understand that? He is the God 
man. And you say, why? who cares? I mean, what difference does it make? The, the idea of him being a man-God is a Mormon concept. The idea that he was a man who was good enough in his manhood that he became God. And this, of course, is... is there's no greater heresy than that statement because that's a different God. That's a different person. It's not Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. He is the God man. And so we say that he is God in eternity past. He is man in time, space, and history and into eternity future. He is God in the flesh. He is God in the flesh. Point one, he is human. Point two, he is eternal God. Point three, is a combination of points one and two, he is God in the flesh. You say, why did you spend so much time on humanity and so little time on deity? Well, I'm going to spend more time on deity, but you need to understand, I think, at this point, that he is deity and humanity, and we're going to unfold this as we go. This is the miracle of the incarnation. You say that's hard to believe, and I disagree with you and say it's impossible to believe. Why? Because a miracle is what separates itself from other great acts of God that we can understand on some level. We all too often apply the idea of the miraculous to things that are truly great works of God, but they're not miracles. There should be a line in your thinking between the miraculous and great acts of God that we can get our arms around. The miraculous is the impossible. The miraculous is the parting of the Red Sea. The miraculous is the raising of a dead life unto new life. There are many great acts of God, but they are not all miracles. One of the miracles of God is the act of incarnation, that God would become a baby. I don't get it, and I never will, not even in heaven. We'll never understand this, but we know it to be true because his word tells us that it is true. And you say, well, that's not good enough for me. Then you're looking for yourself to have the knowledge of God that he has not given to us. We are distinct from him in that there are things because he is God that he understands and has not disclosed to us. And he can do that. And you and I should be grateful for that because it is the reality of our lives and his sovereignty. In the incarnation, according to Isaiah 7.14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. You know what that word means? It means God with us. And this is a remarkable concept. To those who would have heard this, it, it would have been difficult to comprehend that that's actually what Isaiah was saying. So Isaiah becomes more clear in chapter 9, verse 6, more specific. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. He's going to send us a wonderful counselor, and, and we will know about his birth, and, and we will enjoy that. And then Isaiah says, and he will be called Almighty God. And the Jew first hearing this would have said, blasphemy. You know, we don't call anybody God. And so this is 
the crystal clear prophecy that God would come in the form of a baby. He would be born into human flesh. He is eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This birth, this normal earthly birth, was initiated by a predetermined miraculous basis. In Matthew 1, 18-20, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. You've heard this before. This is not new to you. But it ought to be every bit as stunning as it was to Mary's parents. You're kidding me. That's not possible. Right. It's a miracle. It is what God and God alone can do. We've heard it so many times. We've been to Christmas pageants. We've listened to people talk about it. We've heard preaching on it. And it sweeps by us as if it's no real big deal. The Spirit of God determined, therefore, that the means of salvation is from the Lord. It's from the Lord through man. But it's from the Lord. The Lord caused Mary to be with child. It also makes possible full deity and full humanity. God in human flesh. That the Holy Spirit would cause her to be with child. No man would come up with this idea. You say, well, I've read some Greek mythology that sounds a lot like this. Guess who copied who? (laughs) The full deity in human form. It also means that Christ did not inherit sin. Regarding the full deity of Jesus Christ, He is called God. Theos. John 1, 1-2 The Word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, Hebrews 1.8, But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Titus 2.13, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God, Theos, and Savior, Christ Jesus. Regarding the issue of the great I am, we love this, right? We love the idea that he is the great I am, and we have no idea what it means, but it sounds cool. That he is the great I am is that he is the pre-existent one. The term Yahweh in the Hebrew Old Testament in Exodus 3 goes this way. We see it in this text. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Yahweh, Yahweh. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. In the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Bible, which was the commonly used text in Jesus' day. There were, of course, rabbi scholars who read from the 
Hebrew Old Testament, but the, the more commonly used text was the Septuagint. Again, the Septuagint being the Greek translation of Old Testament Hebrew or the Hebrew Old Testament. In Exodus 3, verse 14, these words are used in the Greek, ego eimi, I am. I am that I am. And so when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, scholars chose to use the Greek terms as their normal terms. This is not unusual. I am ego eimi. In John 8, 25 we read, so they were saying to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, what have I been saying to you from the beginning? And then in verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, ego, me." In the Greek New Testament, precisely the same terminology as in the Greek Old Testament. And the response, as you know, from those who are looking on is, okay, we're going to kill you because you have just blasphemed God. You are claiming to be the great I am. His response is, before Abraham was, ego me. He is the almighty God. He is the almighty, eternal creator God. He is the God of power. The term translated in Revelation 1.8 as almighty is a term that means mountain I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. He is Lord. The term kurios in the Bible is used for Yahweh 6,814 times in the Septuagint. This term refers to His sovereignty. He is in charge. He is Lord. He is Master. He's not your bud. He's not your co-pilot. He's not your pal. He is your master and you are his slave. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This speaks of his essence. He is Lord. He is the Almighty. He is Creator. He is the eternal God. And yet, he is man. You say, so is it an admixture? Is it a combo? He's got half and half. He's half man. He's half God? No, that's heresy. You say, well, so how does that work? And I say, I don't know any more about how that works than you do. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we do see that it is the reality of Scripture and it is the reality of Christian history that God became a man. God who did not stop being God. And when I say he divested himself of his deified prerogatives, I don't mean in any sense at all that he stopped being God even for an instant. He maintained his deity while emptying himself of his deified prerogatives for a time. The Greek word is kenosis. It means a self-emptying. And we get that from Philippians 2. He did that out of humility. And then last, he's a friend of sinners. He's a friend of sinners. Matthew eleven eighteen says, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. In other words, John was humble. He didn't eat, he didn't drink, he just, you know, he did what he did, and people accused him of having, having a demon. On the other hand, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. 
John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul is heartbroken. He longs to be with the Corinthians and he is prevented from being with them to the point that he even experiences depression. He longs to be with those who are in Christ. He says in chapter 2, verse 12 of 2 Corinthians, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. And heartbroken in this circumstance, he deliberately turns his attention to the certainty of Christ's triumph in interaction with other people. He does not rest in his circumstances. Mindful of God's greatness. Mindful of the reality that Jesus Christ is the God Man, the supreme God Almighty, creator of all things, who has created all things for himself, yet is a friend to man. And Paul then says this, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. In your evangelistic efforts, do you endeavor to spread the fragrance of Jesus Christ to those that you talk with? Or is it a a battle? Is it an effort to prove to them that Jesus is who He says He is and to do so at all costs? He says in verse 15, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. In other words, there will be those who are offended by our kindness, by our compassion, by our patience, by our willingness to exalt and display the person of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this. In your evangelistic efforts, and I'm not talking so much about just a one-on-one with an uh, interaction with someone that is never followed up by something else, but more so in, in relationships with people that you would hope to be used of the Lord to have influence on, Do you think of and depend upon the reality that Jesus Christ is creator? That he is the eternal God? That he is sovereign in all things? That he's controlling every moment? That he himself is the one whom you must trust in that evangelistic effort? Or is he simply the crowbar to get people to make a decision? Paul goes on here, having spoken of those to whom the fragrance of Jesus Christ is death unto death, And he says to the other, a fragrance from life to life. A fragrance from death unto death, but also that same fragrance being life unto life. You understand you don't persuade anybody? 
you, you are the same person. You, you are committed to compassion. You're committed to kindness. You're committed to love. You're committed to God's sovereignty. You're committed to believing and teaching that He is the Creator, sovereign God who became a baby, who emptied Himself, who became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you do that, then there will be those who will be affected by your being a fragrance of Christ unto God, he's the audience, a fragrant of Christ unto God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. God's person in evangelism is the issue. You need to know Christ. You say, I know Christ. You need to know him better. I do too. We need to know Christ in his word. We need to focus upon Him. We need to meditate upon Him. Paul asked this question. Who's adequate for these things? I'm not. Paul's not. He says elsewhere in the Scripture, I'm not adequate for these things. For we are not like so many. So, it's one thing to be inadequate. It's another thing to be inappropriate. It's one thing to be insufficient in who you are. It's another thing to miss the point. There are those who peddle the Word of God. There are those who use the Word of God for personal purposes. Ulterior motive. Something motivates them other than the desire to know Christ and to make Him known. There are those people. But Paul says we're not like them. We're not, we're not like them, and there are many of them. We're not like so many peddlers of God's word, but on the other hand, as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. We speak in Christ. God is our audience. In the sight of God, we speak in Him. In other words, when we speak, we speak because we've been with Him, because we've meditated upon Him, we've worshipped Him, we've exalted Him, we've put our focus upon Him, our lives are about Him. And you say, man, I fall so far short of that. And I say, I do too. And so we minister to each other. And we remind ourselves of the greatness of Jesus Christ. And so we reserve a time in our worship service for singing to Him. Because he is the eternal God who became man that he might be our friend. Lord, we thank you for the person of Jesus Christ who is strong and yet weak. That he became weak that we might be strong in him. So we ask for boldness, willingness to trust you, to believe that Christ is good, that he has provided all that is necessary for us to be involved in effective evangelism. Not that we would memorize a man-made plan, not that we would subject ourselves to a method, but that we would know Christ and be privileged to be involved in making him known. We ask all this for his glory. Amen.